Good morning. We have the joy and privilege this morning of welcoming a new member to our church. So I'd like to ask Thomas Ferris if you'd come forward, any elders that are in the service today, and we would like to um, welcome Thomas into membership. Anywhere you like, buddy. I'll stand right here. <laughs> Except there. Oh, not there? <laughs> <laughs> Just give me the hard time. <laughs> Thomas, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation except as he has offered it by his sovereign mercy in the gospel? Yes. And do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, and do you receive and depend on him alone for your salvation? Yes. And do you now promise to resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live a life that is appropriate for a follower of Jesus Christ? I do. And do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service to God and its ministry to others to the best of your abilities? I do. And do you submit yourself to the government, the discipline of this church, and to the spiritual oversight of the elders? And do you promise to promote the unity, the purity, and peace of this church? I do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for men like Thomas that really want to step up beyond just being a follower of Christ to being a disciple of Christ, and how glad we are to welcome him into membership with this church. And we pray for your richest blessing to be on him, that you will continue the process of maturing him and growing him and ultimately using him for your glory and for his good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Thomas, inasmuch as you've made this profession of faith and having been approved by the elders for membership in this church, you're entitled to all the privileges of this congregation and the fellowship of this church, along with all of the duties and responsibilities incumbent upon those who serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. Now let's pause for a moment of prayer. Father, once more we thank you again for the joy and privilege that we have to gather together and raise our voices in song to express our love for you and our love for each other. The joy of having fellowship with one another here and the joy of being in your presence and um, knowing that your favor is among us. Father, we continue our worship now as we turn to the proclamation of your word and we gladly give you our attention and invite you by the spirit who um, inspired these words to now inspire them into our hearts um, father we ask this for the glory of the name of your son jesus that you would mature us make us growing uh, wise christians living for your glory we ask this in jesus name amen now, clarence darrow is probably the most famous uh, defense attorney in America about a century ago. He was known as being quick-witted and eloquent uh, for his impassioned arguments of very unpopular figures. His clients ranged from a labor leader and socialist Eugene Debs to thrill killers uh, Nathan Leopold and I can't think of the first guy's first name, Richard Loeb. Here's, these two guys were University of Chicago students and they thought it would be 
amusing to find someone and kill them just for the sake of getting away with the crime. They thought they could plan the perfect crime, and so they killed 14-year-old Bobby Banks. Um, probably the, he's, uh, Clarence Darrow's best well-known for his uh, defense of the schoolteacher John Scopes. Um, John Scopes was being tried by the state of Tennessee for teaching evolution in the school, and so of course, today you'd be tried for not teaching evolution in the school. But uh, he was teaching the, the theory of evolution, and so a very famous trial called the Scopes Monkey Trial of, of 1925, um, and he was the defender. Of course, you probably know it better from the 1960s Spencer Tracy movie, um, Inherit the Wind, you know, where he's, he's acting as Clarence Darrow. Um, some say it was this trial, the Scopes Monkey Trial, where Darrow... Uh, invented this very famous trick that he had where he would take a paper clip and shove it down inside of a cigar. And then he would, he would, he needed an assistant for this part too. He'd smoke the cigar and somebody would offer him a, a, an ashtray which he would refuse. And he'd continue to smoke the cigar while his opponent, the prosecution, is developing his case and the, and the ash is getting longer and longer and longer. And he would take an eight inch cigar and smoke it down and have a six and a half inch ash on the end of the cigar because the wire held the, the ash in place. And after a while, of course, the jury is not listening to the prosecutor anymore. They're wondering when that ash is going to fall on the ground. So it was probably at that trial. It's hard to document when this actually took place, except federal judge Lauren Smith said he actually once saw Daryl open up a paper clip and shove it down a cigar. This was not during a trial, but during a, a meeting. And watch while he smoked that eight inch stogie down to, to seven inches of ash. So again, the, the whole concept was to distract the jury or the judge from actually hearing the argument that was posed against him. It was, it was brilliant. Savannah News, uh, tried to find out if that was actually true, would that actually work? So in an article called Straight Dope, they were trying to find out if you really could smoke a cigar, an eight-inch cigar down to a seven-inch ash. And the article says, I volunteered my assistant, Una, to discover what she could. She acquired six cigars and five short pieces of piano wire, ranging from 0.062 inches down to 0.015 inches, um, she also straightened out the standard paper clip, then carefully fed the wire into each of the center of the cigars and set up an elegant apparatus of metal clamps inside a box to allow the cigars to be burned undisturbed. Needless to say, this accomplished nothing since the cigars needed air passing through them to keep them lit, which, as a non-smoker, Una was disinclined to supply. <laughs> she tried next rigging up a hand-pumped bladder to draw air through the cigars. This plan was also a failure. Finally, sacrificing herself for science, she sat on her patio and gingerly puffed away. The results, each of the wires worked well for keeping the ash together on the cigar. Typically, the ash would reach 4 to 4.5 4 to inches before Una extinguished the cigar. <laughs> so there you have it. Now you know. Now what you're going to do with this knowledge, I can't say. Smoking is verboten in courtrooms these days, and I doubt that a cigar would go over well in most indoor meetings, but that's hardly my problem. All I do is provide the facts. So apparently, <laughs> apparently it really did work, you know, and apparently Daryl actually smoked the cigar down with the wire in it to distract um, the jury. It, uh, he, was, he was good at distraction and is good in his defense. So at any rate, when a court uh, is typically 
uh, begun. There, there's these initial remarks. Uh, the prosecution gets up to say what he's going to say. So here's what they do. They tell you that they're going to tell you, then they tell you, then they tell, tell you that they told you. So then the defense gets up and they tell you what they're going to tell you, then they tell you, then they tell you what they told you. That's how a court goes, right? So uh, the prosecution makes its case, and after all is said and done, the, when the prosecution has finished its indictments, the prosecution rests. And then it's the defense chance to to answer these charges, and when all is said and done, then the defense rests. Well, that's where we're at today in our study of Romans. Um, Paul has been uh, charging, he's creating these indictments. There's this courtroom where man is on trial, and he's been building a rather lengthy list of indictments against mankind, and he's doing so without any relief. It just goes on and on and on without any good news. He just keeps building these this very glum, dark view of mankind, and we're just waiting. Well, when do we get a break from, from all of this? Well, where we are today, the prosecution finishes its indictments and the prosecution rests, and now the defense rests. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Again, as we've noted throughout our first uh, two chapters of Romans, Paul has placed the language as courtroom language because man is on trial before God. He's not lived up to the knowledge that he has. He's not, um, he's not used the light that he's been given. Universally, men have rejected what they know about God and what God requires of them so that they are without excuse and there is therefore no escape from God's righteous judgment. So we first looked at Men who lacked restraint, they are given into moral and religious entropy, and consequently they have devolved into perversity and idolatry. And then we talked about men who do have great morals themselves, and they do conform to these moral ethical codes, and yet still we are told that even so, they are infinitely insufficient from what God requires from His righteous demands. And as a consequence of that, God's wrath is building, and it is building and growing until the day of judgment when he unleashes the full fury of his indignation against wickedness and rebellion. So there's no excuse, there's, there's no escape from God's judgment. There's nowhere that we can run except to flee to the throne of God for his grace, um, that grace that we find at the cross of Jesus Christ. And there we receive the transference of his righteousness to us and our guilt to him and our wrongdoings fully punished at the cross, satisfying God's requirement. However, we're still in this same courtroom today, and Paul has moved us last week. He moved us on from talking about Gentiles who are moral to talking about the Jews, and he tells us this indictment against mankind is not just for the non-religious people. This indictment applies to all religious people, including the Jews, too. They're also guilty of not living up to the light that God has given them. They also will receive the just penalty um, of violating what God requires of them. They're just as guilty of, as the Gentiles, and perhaps more so. And these Jewish people have a place of a special privilege. They've been given advantages that 
the rest of the world does not have. They, they have more than just general revelation. Remember, we talked about general revelation being what everyone knows about God, what everyone can see in creation. That's general revelation. But the Jews have more than that. They have special revelation. They have the words of the prophets. They have the words of the law. They have God's own words. Beyond that, they are God's chosen people. They are God's covenant community. They're, they're descendants of the patriarchs. They're receivers of the promise. More than anyone else, they know God, and they know what God requires. But this special place of privilege also puts them in a place of higher responsibility and expectation. And now as we approach this third chapter of Romans, we're still talking about these Jew Jews whom Paul has been addressing, who imagined that because they were Jews, they, they had some special place of rightness um, before God, that they had this um, righteousness that was there simply by, by being part of the race. And Paul is telling him, that righteousness that you think you have is completely non-existent. They, they saw themselves as the possessor of God's word. They saw themselves where we were last week as guides to the blind, correctors of the foolish, teachers of the immature. Paul is just stripping that all away and saying, you have no advantage when it comes down to it. You're just as guilty. And then he says, verse 29 of chapter 2, um, that for all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, true righteousness is not a matter of, of, of religious occupation. It's a matter of the heart. A uh, Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And so we find ourselves, as Paul indicts all mankind, we find ourselves hemmed in by the law, hemmed in by, by God's requirements. And it is only by God's sovereign grace rescuing us through the, the redemptive death of His Son that gives us any hope, this, the rescue that we look for by, by God's sovereign grace. It's, therefore, since salvation is, is granted to us by sovereign grace and not because we can earn it, in fact, we've done everything we can to not earn it, but since it is a matter only of sovereign grace, it is a highly offensive to God that we approach him and think we have any way of recommending ourselves to him apart from grace. To think that we can add anything to what Christ has done on the cross, to say that what Christ did was insufficient, it needs me to finish the work, is highly offensive to God. And so Paul takes us back to this, this courtroom where now the charges are leveled and, and the defense shrivels under the weight of the, the, the evidence substantiating the charges. And so while we may be accustomed to the idea in courts today that there's all kinds of, of antics and distractions and things which can obscure justice, when it comes to the courtroom of God, there won't be any distractions. There won't be any antics. There won't be any crooked judge. We will stand before Almighty God Himself, and we will get infinitely deserved justice, which amounts to God's wrath against sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Well, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Again, we've been talking about the, the advantages of being a Jew, and Paul is saying that there's a parallel here between the Gentile and the Jew. Even though the Jew has special advantages, he's held to a higher level of accountability. Ultimately, all mankind, those without the law, the, the Scripture, 
and those with the law ultimately are equally guilty and cannot recommend themselves to God based on their works. And so he says, what advantage is there? We might ask the same question. For us as Christians today, you know, we say, well, we're God's people. We're the new Israel. We're the covenant people of, of, of God. Well, then what advantage is there to, to being a godly person? What advantage is there to being a member of the church? What, are, what advantage is there to, to being baptized or, or taking communion or any other religious activity? What advantage is there to all of that if we're, if we're still subject to condemnation anyway? So the essence of the question is that, that Paul is asking, because he's asking Jewish Christians, of which he is one, and he basically says, well, do we as Jews, and you might ask, do we as Christians have an edge? Uh, because if not, if there's no advantage to being a Jew, if there's no advantage to being a religious Christian, why do it? If we're all going to be convicted in the end, why work so hard to be good? Why, why not just enjoy yourself, just move with the flow like everybody else? Well, the answer is that we do have an edge, we do have an advantage, but the bottom line is it's not possible to please God and to earn our righteousness through anything that we can do. So Paul's answer to the Jews is that, well, yes, circumcision has an advantage, and being part of the Jewish community is an advantage, but not the kind of advantage that you're thinking of if you think that you can be saved through, through these advantages. And so to do justice to Paul's thinking, he, he says, well, what advantages are there? And he says, what, what verse are we in? Verse 1, well, well, first of all, he says, there is an advantage. First of all, we are entrusted with the very words of God. So he begins with first of all. We're actually going to have to wait till chapter 9 to hear the second of all and the third of all. And he's going to answer those questions, but he's not, he's not going to deal with anything but the first of all um, today. So what advantage is there to being a Jew? Well, first of all, we've got the scriptures. We've got the very words of God. We know what God is wanting to communicate to us. Can you think of anything better for us as an advantage for as religious people than to have the scriptures? I mean, if apart from having the scriptures, how do we know what God is like? And how do we know more specifically what God wants? And how do we know who we are, or, or, or how we should be living a life that pleases God. How, how do we know um, how, to, how to deal with our guilt? How do we know what to do about our problem with sin? How do we know what is the best way to, to live our life? Uh, how, how do we know that uh, when a person dies that there's more beyond, that there's a life after the grave? How would you know that? apart from the special revelation of the Scripture. So he says, here's the first advantage the Jew has. He's got the Scripture. By the way, that's the same advantage that you have, only more so. You have God's Word. You know what God wants. Again, we're going to have to wait till chapter 9 for the rest of it. He's just introducing the subject right here. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. By no means let God be true, though every one were a liar, as written, though you, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This problem of Israel's unbelief must have really confounded Paul. 
It must have really stumped him. He names it several times. In, in five different chapters, he brings this up, this problem of, of Israel's unbelief. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. Um, he deals with it. And, and, and more specifically, in chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, he talks about these wasted privileges that, that Israel's had, and it confounds him. But he never lets the fact that Israel wasted its privileges to impugn the fact that God made a covenant with his people and he, and he offers them his grace. So the reality is that no human failures actually frustrate God's plan of, uh, of his covenant grace. And so mankind can trample the covenant, but that doesn't in itself invalidate the covenant. So he asks, does Israel's faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God, and he says, well, no, by no means. Let God be true that everyone were a liar as written, that you may be justified by your words and prevail when you judge. By no means. That's a very emphatic language here. Uh, he's negating, that, no way, it's not possible, absolutely not. And then he says, let God be true. Well, he's probably referring here to let God be true as a, as a promise keeper, Though it also applies to, the, to God being universally a truth teller, but he's probably saying God keeps his promises, that God be true to keep his promises. So whatever it means, whether God keeps his promises or, or that God does judge sin, um, he's right in what he does. And if the law instructs us, the law also judges us. And so the best place to stand is close to God's grace so that we don't stand in the place of God's judgment. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Uh, here Paul is anticipating an objection, almost certainly because this objection has actually been voiced, it's actually been raised, and it stands as an objection against the Christian doctrine of salvation by grace alone. But the question really is, amounts to this. If I do wrong, if I sin and it offends a holy God, and then he forgives that sin, doesn't that magnify God's grace in that he's forgiving sin? And if I do something really bad and God gives me a whole bunch of grace, aren't I somehow serving God's purposes of giving him glory when he shows grace when I sin? Again, this is a, an argument that Paul's going to come back to, uh, but he's, he's bringing it up at this point he, because um, he the question, Paul says, is absolutely stupid. You know, how can you think that you're, you're benefiting God because you sin? So he says, he's going to bring it back up again in chapters 6 through 8, but we won't spend a lot of time with it right now. But just to, to point out that it's a stupid argument to think that God benefits from me violating his covenant, violating his holiness. The truth of the matter is, of course, this that God does receive glory by demonstrating his forgiveness and his graciousness to redeemed sinners like me. That glorifies God. 
but it is equally true that God receives glory when he judges and condemns the sinner. That's also true. So when you just think in terms of half of that equation, that I'm doing God a favor by sinning, um, he's just pointing out how stupid the argument is. It's twisted. It, you know, to, one, it's, it defames God uh, to make him so small and petty. And two, it ignores the fact that even as Christians, even as God's covenant people, there are, in fact, consequences even though we are recipients of grace and will not be held judicially accountable for our sins, we're still going to have to be accountable. And there are consequences now for our disobedience. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's written. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. We have all turned aside. Together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul comes to this final point here, and he's um, dramatizing the immensity of the advantage of the Jew, but he says at the same time, the Jew is also equally under sin. And here in verse 9, he indicts the whole human race. And he begins by saying, Are the Jews better off? And no, not really, because all people, Jews and uh, non-Jews, Gentiles, are under sin. Notice that he uses the word sin, not sins. It's not the plural sins. It's, it's, the, it's this dynamic of sin that we are under, this, that all human beings are under this dynamic power or dominion of the force of sin. Everyone in the world is under this power of sin. We are all infected with this radical corruption. In fact, that's the language that Jesus uses in, in Matthew 7, 15, where he talks about the tree being corrupt at its roots. That's that same word, root and radical, that the tree is radically corrupted. That's why the fruit is corrupt. So Paul is charging that all men, however good some individuals may appear, however noble and upright and admirable they may appear, they are all subject to this radical corruption. The Russian poet Turgenev um, caught it perfectly when he said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. So now Paul is substantiating his charges. He's building his indictment. He's using a, a, a technique of stringing texts together in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews called the sharats, which just means uh, stringing pearls together. So he's using these, these uh, six quotations from the Old Testament, and he's bringing from these quotations 13 indictments against mankind with uh, devastating artistry. He describes, first of all, the, the, the uh, corrupt, depraved character of man, and secondly, he moves to the depraved conduct of man, and then he gives the reason for this corrupt character and conduct, and that is, finally, he gives us the cause. It has to do with the character. 
And he says in verse 10, no one is righteous. And in case you missed the point that there might be an exception to that, he says, no, not one. And we often use uh, relative terms for righteousness. You know, I might not be perfect, but I'm better than that guy. I might not be as good as Lawrence Johnson, but I'm way better than Terry Johnson. <laughs> the reality is that the only standard of righteousness that we can adequately measure ourselves against is the measure of the man, Jesus, who lived in perfect obedience to God. He did not sin. He did not turn away. He fulfilled the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what you do? Nothing like that. I doubt that there's a single person in this room who hasn't violated that command today since you got up. So now Paul moves from the character of man, and he talks about the conduct of man, and his his uh, description here, his emphasis has, has to do with human speech. And it's a really a disgusting picture that, that he talks about. This, our, our language, our speech, the rottenness of who we are proceeds from the throat to the tongue to the lips to the mouth. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And the picture here is the offensive odor that would be emitted from a grave that had not been closed or a sepulcher that had been opened and there's rottenness inside. He says that's the, that's the kind of filthiness that proceeds from your mouth. And then he goes on and is described as the final pearl in his karats, verse 18, the, the reason for all of this, so first you have the character, then the conduct, now the cause. The reason for all this is there's no fear of God before their eyes. The, the fear of God is left out of their thinking. Well, let's be clear, because there's several different kinds of fear of God that we might have. We might have the appropriate fear of God that uh, has to do with uh, reverential fear. The, when you're in the presence of a holy being, you know who God is, and as you grow to know who God is more and more, your respect, your reverence, your fear for God grows. That's a healthy fear that every being, every created entity should have, a fear, a reverential fear of God. And then, of course, there's a second kind of fear we might call a, an apprehension of God's correction. Don't imagine that because you're a Christian forgiven of your sin, there are not going to be consequences for your behavior. Uh, uh, Proverbs 3, verse 12. Uh, for the Lord disciplines, the, disciplines those that he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Or, or Hebrews 12, 6. You know, the Lord disciplines the the ones that he loves and chastises every son in whom he receives. Even as Christians, we ought to have a respect, a fear of God that when we screw up, because he loves us, he's going to correct us. I don't want that correction. It's painful. And that should cause me to have a very healthy fear of God who loves me and gave his son for me. But the kind of fear that we're talking about here is terror. 
The fear of standing before a, a holy, almighty God of justice and to stand naked before his holiness should terrorize you. And if it doesn't, you have this, you're stupid to not have a fear of God. He will sit in righteous judgment over you and you will have to give an answer to him and what follows that is your eternal sentence, your eternal decree. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So Paul, this actually finishes the first section of, of uh, the letter of Romans in which Paul is concluding, one, that every human being is accountable for God, to God for, for how they live and what they have done. Uh, secondly, that, that uh, uh, every human being is, is guilty of countless things that we have done wrong. Third, that uh, every human being will, will never be justified before God on the basis of any supposed good works. And he takes us to the next verse. Uh, let's back up to verse 19. Uh, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be silenced, the whole world may be, be accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You have in these two verses a, a very important foundational truth about Christianity. Now, there was a, a famous theologian by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse. You maybe recognize his name. He actually made famous this question that later got used by D. James Kennedy in evangelism explosion. But um, Barnhouse was the first guy to bring it up. So Barnhouse would, would witness to someone, and he would say something like this. Suppose when we leave this building today, a car jumps up on the curb and runs us over and kills us both. At that moment, uh, we, we are dead. And then we need to brush aside any thoughts that we're going to, to see St. Peter at the gates of heaven because that's only true in jokes about Irishmen. But apart from that, we are going to meet God. Now suppose at that moment, this moment of ultimate reckoning, God were to say to you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? And, and notice the emphasis on the word right. What right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say? And Barnhouse noted that there was really only three possible answers to that question. Everybody's answer fit into one of these three categories. The first, and by far the most popular one, was that we, we're, we are justified by works. That somehow, when I stand before God, and he weighs me in the balance, he's gonna say that I, I, I may have done a few things wrong. I may have sowed my wild oats. I may have slipped up. But in the balance, you know, I've been a pretty good guy. These people, of course, have a very high opinion of themselves. Uh, they think that they're models of righteous conduct, that they either, either haven't done anything really bad or that somehow whatever bad they have done will be overwhelmingly weighed out by the good that they have done. Now, other people know that they have consistently done good, even though sometimes they do bad, and they think that, again, God will take note of their good works, and because it's God's business to forgive, 
Even though I'm a bad person, he'll welcome me into heaven. Um, some people say, well, you know, I, I've, I've tried to keep the golden rule. Do unto others before they've done unto you. <laughs> that, that's not really it. Others will say, well, you know, I've, I've done a lot of good things for my neighbors and, and so on. Uh, to a person that would reply to a question like that, that they're a, basically a good person and they expect God to give them the benefit of the doubt based on that. Barnhouse would quote <coughs> from Galatians 2.16. He'd say, we, we put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. And then Barnhouse points out, you can't do enough good to outweigh your bad. You can't do enough good to be righteous. Now, the second answer, and the one that's really germane to our text today, is the, the answer of silence, that, that you'd have nothing to say. That when you stand before God's judgment and you have the, this indictment of your sins against you, you realize there's nothing to say. There's no, there's no defense here. And we're told at that moment, all mouths will be silenced, will be mute, because we realize in the presence of God, there is no explanation. We have no hope. Of, of, of saying that we were good people. And the reason for that is that we're not standing in man's court. We're standing in God's court, and it's God who's the judge, and God knows the facts. There's not going to be any explanation. There's not going to be any, I did mostly good. Or it's not going to be any, well, you just don't understand the, the background behind it. Every mouth will be silenced. And we will realize that we are not righteous, and there's nothing we can say and so there's silence. The defense rests. In the courtroom, the, the defendant is given his, his legal representation, and they vigorously defend against whatever charges are, are leveled against him. He explains why there's a lack of merit in the prosecution's case or how he's been misunderstood. I've been framed. I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. And so there's all this persuasion that's done, all these rhetorical skills employed to try to convince the judge or the jury of that, that person's innocence. But when the defense runs dry, when all of the arguments have been given, when he realizes he's got no more excuses, no more arguments, that, and that the charges that are levied, levied against him have merit, there's nothing more that he can say. He's silent. Every mouth is stopped. Every mouth is shut tight. All the excuses have ended in his guilt is certain and his defense is exhausted. And with this, with this moment of the mouths being silent, having nothing more to say, the only thing that remains is for the judge to re-enter the room and sit down on his bench. The gavel comes down and the sentence is given. That's all that you have left to wait for. The word accountable here is also a, a legal term, and it, it's, it's a Again, borrowed from the courtroom, it means to, uh, to, 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 to give an answer, to, uh, to bring under the cognizance, of, to show that one's not liable for, for judgment or, or punishment. And the judge here, whom everyone will give an account, implies that there is, in fact, a day of reckoning for all people. And unless at that day you possess a perfect righteousness... Then the prosecutor will press his case for justice to be done against you, and there'd be nothing to shield you from God's wrath 
the fierceness of his justice on that day of reckoning. And that's why at that moment, mouths are closed and the defense rests. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the inevitable conclusion here is that man is not nearly good enough. He's not righteous enough for God to declare him righteous. This is an important thing that came out of the Reformation, that man cannot be declared righteous until he is righteous. This is where the Catholic Church and the Protestants split up. The, the Catholic Church says God cannot declare you righteous until you are righteous. You need to become righteous, either through the merits that are given to you through the church or spending some time in purgatory until you become righteous. The Protestants say, no, God doesn't declare a man to be righteous until he is righteous, and we become righteous through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and not because we have righteousness of our own. Someone said in a very quaint way that the law is the light that shows the dirt in the room. It's not the broom that cleans it out. The light shows us how desperately unrighteous we are, but the law does not enable us to become righteous. And so if someone aims to become righteous through doing good deeds or works of the law, we realize how terribly pointless that is. And the person thinks that I, I'm, I will make up for the bad things I've done by doing a lot of good things. The problem with that is, one, how much good do you have to do for making up for the derelict that you really are? And all the time that you're doing good to make up for the crime that you committed, you're doing more crimes. You're sin you continue to sin. It keeps accumulating. You can't outweigh the balances thinking that you're going to do good. You're going to become righteous enough that you can be declared not guilty. The law does its work in, in exposing us and exposing our sin, our hopelessness before God. And until we understand that, until we understand how the law indicts us and finds us guilty, then the gospel doesn't make any sense. You, God forgives you of what? By the works of the law will no flesh be justified. We, we need to agree that we stand guilty before God and rightly the object of his judgment before his grace even begins to make sense to us. The, the law can't tell us how to deal with our guilt. It can't tell us how to find forgiveness of our sins. It can't show us how to become righteous before a holy God. For that, we have to look to Jesus Christ. We have to look to the cross. The problem is, at least where we are in Romans, we're not there yet. We're still under this dark, oppressive, unrelenting exposure to how we are totally utter failures to do what is right. And he leaves us at that point right where he wants us to be in this place of abject hopelessness. Now, the reality is you can build this case as Paul has been doing and I've been reiterating and show how desperately wicked you are and how hopeless your case is before God. The reality is most people won't care. What do I care if God's mad at me, if there is a God? But for those 
who do care, who understand this to be true, it means there's hope for us. The further you are in realizing how wicked you are, the closer you are at actually being saved, not the other way around. When you know that this hopeless condition is true of yourself, you're nearer to salvation rather than farther from it. So far from being unworthy to be saved, you are ready to be saved because Jesus Christ is the Savior of the helpless. It's the helpless that the Lord puts right with God. The worse you know yourself to be, the worse you understand your situation to be in, the more helpless you feel, the safer you are. So here's Paul. He's basically making an extended argument of what Jesus has said when he said, I, I come to call uh, not the righteous, but the sinners. And so Paul's argument that I hope you can say with me is, well, I'm a sinner, and therefore I must be called. Now, I mentioned before that there's three answers to Barnhouse's question. What right do you have to be in the presence of God in heaven? And I said, well, the, the first answer that's not correct is um, that you're justified by works. And the second answer is that there is no answer, that there's silence, the mouth is closed. There is a right answer. There is only one right answer. There's only one saving answer to the question of what right do you have to come into God's heaven? And it focuses not on your works of righteousness, but on somebody else's works of righteousness. The answer is that you're focusing not on your works, but on the achievement of, of Jesus Christ. If we're to be, to be saved, it's not going to be based on the, the, the works that we have done, anything good that we can do. It's going to be solely on the basis of what Christ has done for us. He, he suffered in our place. He bore the, the punishment of the cross. And all, to come, all that come, therefore, to God on, on, on that basis and only on that basis will be saved. No others will be. It's only those who come to God trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ that will enter into heaven. Clarence Darrow was, a, was an amazing lawyer. He was a master of clever defense, of, of distraction. But before God's court, there will be no distraction. There will be no clever defense. There will be no legal loopholes. There will be no imperfect judge. And you will have to stand before him. For Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what's due him for what was done in the body, whether good or evil. And so with this indictment, the prosecution rests. And with nothing to say in our own defense, there's nothing for us to do but await the judgment, the defense rest. Let's pray. It's dark and gloomy, and it offers us no hope. It doesn't leave us with a good feeling, but that, in fact, is your intention. We must thoroughly understand the charges against us and how we have no suitable answer in our own defense before we can embrace that this righteousness which you demand, Father God, comes to us through Jesus Christ. And this is all in preparation for us grasping the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. I pray that we are here today not because we want to feel good about our faith 
not because we're trying to do works of righteousness to add brownie points before you. We're here because we want to grow in Christ. We want to know you more and love you more. We want to be mature as, as believers. We're here in preparation for the final when we will one day have to stand before you and answer that question. What right do we think we have to come into the presence of a holy God? I pray that everyone here has got the right answer. Now cause these words to ruminate in our hearts this week. Help us to live lives that bring you glory. And in return, God, help us to live lives of joy. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>